Simon Target's latest book, New World Inc., which he co-authored with Jonathan Buckman, is a masterful examination of how 16th century England found itself in a precarious position, politically, socially, and economically, and the desire and need that grew from these problems to expand its influence across the globe. It's the incredibly crazy story of the birth of modern America, with such colorful characters as Sir Francis Drake, Sir Walter Raleigh, Elizabeth I, and Pocahontas, the book has been described as part history, part swashbuckling adventurer's tale, and a fascinating read. Not only is Simon an author and historian, he's also held several senior positions at the Financial Times, as well as the first global editor-in-chief of the Boston Consulting Group. And now, he's founder and director of Thinking Cap Communications, a PR consultancy right here in London. As you listen to our conversation, you'll find some themes that resonate across the centuries, from fractious relations with our European neighbors, pursuing new trade relations with America, and even climate change. So settle down and strap yourself in for a wonderfully crazy journey. Oh, and by the way, Simon will be giving away a signed copy of his fantastic book. All you have to do is go to Twitter and post to me at Your London Legacy that you've heard the episode with Simon Target and hashtag New World Inc. I'm Steve Lazarus, and this is Your London Legacy. If you're a fan of the show and would like to get involved and support us at Your London Legacy and help us keep producing amazing content just for you, you can get involved over on our Patreon page. We take every penny and we'll reinvest it back into the show. If you want to get involved and get hold of some really cool benefits or have us create your very own London Legacy episode or maybe meet up with us and other London Legacy lovers in London, you can do that too over at www.patreon.com forward slash Your London Legacy. Okay, let's get on with the show. I'm delighted to welcome to the podcast today, Simon Target, uh, who is author of New World Inc., the most the story of the British Empire's most successful startups. Hello, so Steve. welcome to the podcast, Simon. Thanks, Steve. It's nice a, to be with you. It's a pleasure. And it's a pleasure to have you on the show today. And I'm glad we could finally meet up. And I'm glad this is the first time I've been able to use the, uh, the good offices of the Royal Society of Arts since I became a, a fellow. It's a wonderful loca- location. <laughs> it must be a sort of 18th century building, isn't it? I, I, yeah. I really should know more about it. I think yeah. it is 18th century, but it's two buildings combined. You've got an old one and a newer one combined. And the interesting thing is it's like a Warren, as we nearly got lost just going to get a coffee before. It's a, it's a maze of different rooms and floors and different styles. Maybe afterwards I can show you the old... Great, I'd love the, to. Yeah. The, the grand room with all the wonderful... Um, freezes and art- artwork around the wall is, is really quite stunning so anyway enough of that i just like to place it for people so we're in the rsa building house which is in some uh, adam street just around just close to off the strand and near Charing cross station so for those of you who are listening we always and the, and the river's just not far away here absolutely um, the river which is a constant theme as you would expect it to be in all London Legacy episodes. And, and in fact, as I was walking up from um, the Embankment Tube, uh, I saw there was Durham House Street, which is just near here. Um, and it reminded me that this is the location broadly of where a building called Durham House was built. Uh, and Durham House was the London home of the Bishops of Durham. And um, in the mid 1500s, so it's kind of the period that we might get to talk about, um, the house uh, or the mansion with its beautiful gardens and so on leading down to the Thames uh, was given for a time to Sir Walter Raleigh. Mm. And so he did a lot of his planning of his future colony here 
pretty much near where we're sitting now. Yeah. And I wonder how many people are even aware of that. Probably none. <laughs> yes, <laughs> well, exactly. well, well, no, I, I'm being just, you know, it's not fair. I mean, I'm sure there are some people who are aware of it, but that building figured, re- you know, fairly prominently in your book, didn't it? It I did mean, indeed. It, it turns up quite regularly because it was given by, I think, Elizabeth, was it Elizabeth the first? Have I read it correctly? Yes, that's right. To Rowley yes. as, as his base. Yes. He obviously met her an untimely end. Yes. Uh, and it, was, it handed from person to person, but where we are is, is an important part of London. Absolutely. Uh, and along with him was his key uh, kind of na- guide on, navigate- on navigation uh, uh, called Thomas Harriet, who was a brilliant Oxford-educated, but from a poor background back then, um, mathematician and scientist who um, is, is known, obviously, for his involvement with Raleigh and the colony of Roanoke, which maybe we will come on to, which was the first English colony, didn't last. But later, in later life, um, he became um, a renowned astronomer, started living in Sion House, which is another uh, beautiful mansion which people can visit down the Thames, uh, or up the Thames. Um, and, depending um, which way you're standing. Depending which way you're standing, <laughs> upriver, yeah. up towards Richmond. And he started drawing pictures of the moon through his telescope pretty much about the same time, arguably just before Galileo. But of course, he didn't publish. So had he published, it's possible that uh, we would know m- much more about Thomas Harriot and maybe put him on a par with Galileo. Wow, that's fascinating. And indeed, we were briefly discussing the monument, previous, which was a previous episode we did, which was I didn't appreciate at the time, was also used as a sort of scientific base. Yes. Um, to look at the stars. I don't know exactly what they were doing, but from down in the basement there. Yes. It wasn't just a memorial to or commemorate the, the Great Fire of London, but no. it was also a scientific. Absolutely. Um, um, and uh, of course, Christopher Wren was um, not just an architect, but a you know skilled sort of mathematician uh, and a professor for a time at uh, Gresham College, which is founded by Thomas Gresham, who's another character in the story of New World Inc. So, let's introduce to the uh, the listeners exactly who you are, Simon. By the way. Uh, Target is not a terribly common name, I don't think, is it? No. And, and yet, I was watching football last night. <sighs> yes. Did you see? Are you a I fa- did. Are you well, a, are so, you a you're quite right. I mean, it's not a very common name, but uh, it, of course, when I hear a Target out there with not just with one T, but two Ts at the end, yes. I do uh, spot it. And as you rightly say, there's a footballer called Matt Target, yeah. uh, who I think used to play for Southampton uh-huh. and now plays for Aston Villa, and I think scored. He oh, scored a crucial, crucial first goal to get them into Wembley. Yeah, um, So I have no idea if I'm related <laughs> yeah. But I have one other Target story, actually, which is kind of history-related, and that's back in 97, 1997, so we're going back 22, 23 years. And I'd just joined the Financial Times. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I was getting to know some of the people at the newspaper. And I had a call from a guy called George Parker, who's now the political editor. Uh, and um, uh, he messaged me, I think, actually, rather than phoned me and said, are you related to this guy on the front page of the Times? And I said, Hadn't, I regret to say, I hadn't read the front story. page of the Times, so I dashed to the to the Times to see what what it was. And there was this picture of this relatively young man crouching down by a heap of skeleton bones in um, it turned out Cheddar Gorge, and there had been a big study of um, by Oxford University of people. They were trying to match the DNA of somebody in the area of Cheddar in Somerset with somebody who was living, and the, and the you know they got school kids involved and so on and so forth and the the teacher of that class 
of uh, one of the classes, uh, you know, was helping to coordinate it. But it turned out that he was the one who had a closest match with um, the skeleton of, of Cheddar Man, the, a, a man that was found, you know, goes back 9,000 years. I remember this story. Um, and um, uh, so they matched it with this man who was crouching down on the front of the Times by these bones, and his name was Adrian Target. Uh-huh. And so somebody, George, uh, said to me, you know, are you related? And I said, I, I don't know. Don't, Maybe, possibly not, but uh, I certainly like my steaks rare, you know, like, <laughs> like a caveman. Yeah. Um, but um, actually, my family do, does hail from the sort of, or part of the family does hail from the southwest, so it's very possible. Oh, you want to do this uh, 23andMe ancestry uh, have. website? Have you done it? I've done it. Well, I'm not oh. sure. So there's two, 23andMe, which yeah. is one you can do, and they also do a sort of medical one, which I'm not yes, particularly I'm not comfortable doing. But ancestry I have done, and... Um, yeah, that, that's fascinating. I mean, I had hoped that it would show this rather exotic background, but sadly, it's it's. A, I think it's ninety something percent British, uh-huh. which suggests actually that you know the family does date back you know a long long time. Yes, but, um, good. You know, got, good. Got, got good stock, good lineage. <laughs> so, Simon, uh, writer, historian, media advisor. Co-author of New World Inc. We should give credit to your co-author, uh, John Butman, who's an American-based yes, fantastic uh, business writer. Business writer for many years. Um, so, who co-wrote this book with you, which was published? What well, came out in paper? When was it actually published in hardback? Originally? So, it published in hardback in 2018 uh-huh. uh, in the US by Little Brown and uh, by Atlantic Books, and it's come out um, in August last year, last year. Uh, in paperback uh, again by Atlantic Books here in the uh-huh. UK and the Commonwealth. Yeah. Okay. And also founder or, and director of Thinking Cap Communications, a strategic thought leadership and public relations consultancy based here in London. So also you worked for the FT for a number of years. Yeah, that's right. Assistant editor. Associate editor. Associate yes. editor. Yes. Did I do you a disservice? No, 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 did I, did no, I, did I, say, did I yes. level a bit? <laughs> uh, editor, and also you were the first global editor-in-chief of the Boston Consulting Group, which is a massive consulting group in America Yes, as well. Uh, is that more a PR agency as well, would you say? Or? Uh, no, it's a, it's a, it's a, it advises companies. It, it's like McKinsey or Bain, if okay. you know those ones. It's uh, a management consultant. It's a management consulting it. firm, so it advises you know CEOs and executives on, on mm. elements of their business and yeah. how to improve it and so on. Yeah. Uh, uh, but I was responsible for their uh, the the publications that they produce to uh, t- send to clients, send to the media, and so on, and also their media relations with you know some of the bigger newspapers. Sure. So before we dig into your uh, wonderful book, New World Inc., which is I don't know if the timing was deliberately to coincide with the uh, the Mayflower celebrations, the four hundred year celebrations. We had it half in our mind, um, although you know it, it was a broader inspiration. And in a sense, it, when you go to America, the story of the, the Pilgrims and Mayflower is is much much bigger there than it is here. Yes. It's talked about. It's taught at schools in a way that it probably isn't here. Uh, of course, now this year being the 400th anniversary of the Mayflower sailing, it's suddenly you know really come back in into fashion as a topic here in the UK. But in in, in America, it has it's it's almost like a creation story, and it, it was that really that sort of prompted us to um, sort of investigate it further. Yes, um, and and we said before we went live. I mean, there's so many sort of let's say micro stories and macro nuanced things which are like ghosts from the past bring brought brought forward to to contemporary sort of politics and economics and social stories as well. So before we dig into that, mm. you're a historian, I think, by... Yes, so before by, I... By birth almost. Yes, so before I um, 
went to, into journalism. I studied history through my 20s, did a PhD at Cambridge on, uh, not on this period actually, on the um, 18th century and the, the, the propaganda, the newspapers of uh, Sir Robert Walpole who was the first Prime Minister, mm -hmm. the first incumbent of Number 10 Downing Street. Um, he was the longest serving Prime Minister from the 1720s to the 1740s. And he was very forward thinking in the sense that he hired a number of reporters and writers to put his case uh, in newspapers uh, outside Parliament. In other words, up until that moment, there had been a lot of focus on controlling uh, politics through the through through Parliament uh, and through the House of Commons in particular, and he started to realise that they needed to get their message out more broadly across 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 Britain, and so he used this whole network and created it and funded it and so on. So that's really what I was looking at. Interestingly, it had not really got a, a lot of attention until this this until I was doing these um, my my work. Most of the focus had been on the the opposition people, the people who were opposing Walpole, who were famous literary people like Jonathan Swift, uh, Alexander Pope, and so on, uh, John Gay, um, English scholars who'd studied them because they wrote beautifully. Yes. Uh, so there was an opportunity but to broadly, write Broadly, what was their opposition to the Well, they thought he was, market. they didn't like Walpole, they felt that he was corrupt. Right. Um, uh, which possibly he was but you know then again most people probably were at that uh -huh. point um and um what do you mean at that point <laughs> well that's true that's true as today as yeah. well um so it's you know it's fascinating to get mm. inside that world and of course it was a very london world this was a time of the coffee houses mm. and you know you, you you've i think you said you you've got an insurance background yeah. you know one of the great coffee houses back then was lloyd's, lloyd's coffee house where lloyd's of london was derived yes yeah. um and um and, and so the coffee houses were built around particular um, sort of uh, professions and, and had their own newsletters. So there was the Lloyd's List, mm. which people would go to, Lloyd, uh, to the Lloyd's Coffee House to read, but they would also read these other, other newspapers as well. So mm. it was a real time of, of you know, people being energized by politics and, and being brought in by print. Mm. So you studied history at university, or did, I did. subsequently the PhD, or both? No, so I studied. I did my undergraduate at Sussex in Brighton, uh, did history, and then went to Cambridge to do the PhD. You know, history covers a lot of topics, um, so you know it could be literally anything in the past. So the topic was, you know, embracing the story, the politics. Uh, it embraced English and literature. And embraced um, and covered philosophy mm. uh, and so on because these are the people that they the writers drew on some you know well-known philosophers you know John Locke and Hobbes and so on and so yes. forth. Um, so it's it was a very fascinating time and it was great to to you know to be amongst other scholars who were st studying slightly different things but you know we're all in the same boat of trying to produce a a yeah. big eighty thousand. What was it? Word to go back to your your school days, as it were. What was it that? prompted or provoked your interest in history from a young age? That's a good question. So I, I went to school in North London. Which, um, which school was that? Southgate um, in Cockfosters. Okay, my wife hails from Southgate. Oh, right. Which school? Come on. It's called Southgate School. Oh, it's called Southgate School. Yes. Okay, fine. Um, <laughs> so we lived just outside the borders of London. We lived in um, just north of the Enfield Borough. Yes. So coming in, I would, you know, do the five mile trip uh, into to school. And, and, and so of course, you know, London was, a, was our sort of playground in terms of places to go. Uh, but even, 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 yet, so I'm thinking back 
one of the earliest memories I have of with history is is going to the famous Tutankhamun exhibition in 19 I think 1972 and, uh, and of course I've been now to the Saatchi the latest Saatchi gallery one uh, which is fascinating and so we were living in Kent at that point so we did a special trip into this uh, an amazing you know um, uh, exhibition at the British Museum uh, and very very strangely the other day I was I was in uh, Oh, what's it called? Ham House. Ham House, which yeah. is uh, a, an, another sort of stately home uh, along the tongue. Way. Yes, and, you know, it's near, relatively near where I live. So we were just, we walked along the towpath to Ham House, went to have a coffee there and look at the grounds. And they now have a secondhand bookstore uh, where you can donate a pound for the, for the paperbacks and mm-hmm. two pounds for the hardbacks. Anyway, I was looking through the nonfiction bit and I found the catalogue of the Tutankhamun exhibition from 1972, oh, from which, of course, I, which oh, I, of course, purchased to yeah. sort of remind myself. That's what, partly why it's back in my mind. Uh-huh. So it's going to some of those exhibitions. There was another one on China in the 70s. Um, there's another one on the Vikings. So I used to go and be taken along to these. You know, uh, you mentioned the monument at the beginning of, the t- of our conversation, and, uh, and you know, that's one of the places that I, I still love to go to and went to, you know, when I was in, you know, when I was five, six or seven, that sort of age. The history uh, of, of somewhere like that just, you know, attracted me. I suppose it's something instinctive. You can't really put your finger on it. But as you go through school and then you find yourself gravitating towards certain subjects, history was the one that I felt most comfortable uh, mm. in and studying. Yeah. That's fascinating. And obviously, a lot of people say you, you've got to understand your history to be able to sort of design your future. But um, yes. seeing, seeing where we are today, it just does make me wonder if we've learned any or many lessons from the past. So you've always been fascinated in history. It's a broad section of, is it particularly British history or? Well, of course, uh, British you know, history obviously think... goes, spreads beyond that. <laughs> yes. I mean, you know, obviously my, my thesis was on, on British history. Uh, but of course, this book is on Anglo-American mm. history, yeah. and I'm certainly interested in that period from the 1500s onwards. So, you know, the early modern period onwards, um, where you can almost trace the roots of where we are now. Mm. And partly that was the spur for for writing this, you know, the, the book of uh, New World Inc., which was um, what really drives America, and and what's Britain's connection or England's connection to it, mm. um, particularly in relation to the to the Pilgrims. So, you know, again, in and in the in the US, uh, the, the pilgrim story is very much front and center. It's something that everyone learns as a, as a kid, and they take it as read. They take it as yeah, gospel. Uh, as gospel, and of course, even in the uh, Oxford English Dictionary, you know, giving it the defi- the um, dictionary definition of the pilgrim fathers as the founders founding, founding, of the yeah. uh, of the United States, and so that intrigued us. And it intrigued my co-writer, John, John Butman, at that point was living in, uh, near Boston, uh, now lives up in, in Portland, because he's one of the 30 million people that claims to have some connection, <laughs> connection with, with the, um, with the, with the Mayflower, uh, passengers. Yeah. But it, it was curious to us because we're both business writers. You know, as you, as you said, I spent, um, you know, 12 years, uh, at the Financial Times. And many years since, working with business business people, um, helping them to craft their special reports and uh, articles and so on. And it was curious that when you think of America, or when we thought of America, it wasn't religious particularly. It was more, you know, the big brands, you know, Google, Facebook, McDonald's. It was the big entrepreneurs, Bill Gates, yeah, Elon Musk. It was commerce. It was Wall Street. It was Silicon Valley. And for somehow the, the Pilgrim story didn't seem to 
explain all that. So as we d delved into some of the archives, tiptoed really into the, uh, those archives, which are mainly here actually, we, we came across this other story which we thought, right, we should tell it. And it starts not in uh, 1620 with the pilgrims, it starts really in, in the 1550s um, with, um, with the English merchants who we then designated along with their associates, uh, the forgotten founders. And it's kind of our view that these forgotten founders should be put in the same sort of bracket as the, as the pilgrim fathers and the founding fathers, the people like Washington and Jefferson and so on, who were associated with the War of Independence in the 1770s and 1780s. And of course, many of these uh, merchants were um, uh, London merchants. Based here in London. Yeah. yeah. So before we, we I mean, it's fascinating because having just done what I suppose was a mini a mini series on on the Mayflower 400 because we're celebrating this year the 400 year sailing of the the Mayflower and the the Pilgrim Fathers stroke settlers founding fathers and separatists and all the rest yeah. of it yeah. in 1620 I'd been zooming in on that story you know almost exclusively and having read this some, as you say as the story of the birth of America modern America yeah. but having read this book it made me think Hang on a second. That's, that's like almost secondary to what went on in the sort of 50, 50 years preceding it. Yes. Which, which is fascinating. So we'll dig into that. But I just want to talk about the, the, the writing of the book itself, because mm. the amount of research that has gone into this is, is mind boggling. I mean, it's, it's not a, a massively, not a massive book in terms of pages. It's 320 pages, yep. which is not unusual, but every single page is covered in detail and names and dates and places and money's worth and goods and things it's just yes. it's just amazing and then you've got like 30 pages of um biblio you know bibliography references which is hundreds of references yes it's just phenomenal how, how long did it take you to do it did, did you think god this is a daunting task or i can't be bothered well, with you, this uh, you, you, so yes i mean um so we uh we started thinking about it 2015 and came out in 2018. Maybe actually we started thinking about it at the end of 2014 actually, and we got the, we got the, the publishing deal in 2015. Right. Um, well, you know, as you know, with, uh, with publishing, you have to think about, you have to prepare a proposal, mm. you then take it to an agent who then takes it to, um, to you know, potential publishers. <clears throat> and actually the first, the agent we took it to liked it, took it out, we had a kind of bidding war, which was quite fun to get involved with. And then uh, we signed on the dotted line with Little Brown. Uh, then, you know, we gave ourselves two years to to write it. Um, and of course, you know, it's, it becomes your passion. It becomes the thing you yeah. dominates you, your weekends. And of course, you know, archives aren't all, always I open can't at believe weekends. this was just weekend. No, well, exactly. <laughs> no, it becomes, this must it have becomes been a thing you do. Seven days a week. Yeah, well, eight eight days part, a week. sometimes parts of it. That, <laughs> yeah. That's absolutely true. Um, what's interesting is how you can research these days because, so, you know, one of the big uh, archival centres was the British Library and the National Archives at Kew. But uh, again, this is a big distinction from how I was researching when I was doing my thesis 30 years ago, PhD uh, 30 years ago. So there's so much now online. Mm. So, uh, so much has been digitized. So you can see um, a, a lot. You can, in other words, you don't need to be con uh, confined by the, you know, the library hours of nine till five or yeah. whatever. You can be doing stuff later, late on. And so that was very liberating. And of course, there's two people working on it. 
So two heads are better than one in that sense. Covering so how do you divvy up the who's doing what, and who's doing what research, and who's writing what bit? Yeah, so that, that so that's often a question I'm asked, you know, a lot because you know, uh, and we decided. I mean, there are different ways you could do this. Some people say, right, that's your chapter and that's my chapter mm. and so on and so forth. And we decided that that wasn't going to work for us. We, we've both been writers and we've both been editors. So we're both used to writing and being edited, which is a skill. Even Shakespeare was edited. Uh, and we're both used to editing. In other words, giving le- reasonably constructive advice so that people don't feel that they're too, uh, you know, hang on a minute. You're, 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 you know, you're changing what I want to say. Um, uh, and so we, every, every, every page has been literally co-written in that sense. We, in a, early on, we started following our particular passion. So, uh, a man called Thomas Smythe, uh, or Smith in the, in the book it was you know, a character that I particularly, uh, you know, focused on. But of course, it, John would also re- research that person and come in with, you know, well, have you thought about that? Have, you know, that doesn't make sense and this sort of thing. Uh, we decided there would be no, no go zones, you know, so, so sometimes people can be quite possessive of mm. things, but we agreed that there would be no, no go zones because ultimately it was about producing a good, but how do you get end. a consistency of voice? So you're not turning one page or one chapter and hearing you and then on the other chapter hearing somebody else because what? The, the tone and flow is, is very consistent. Yes. Well, so the other thing we did, uh, and again, this probably, this book couldn't have been written before the digital age because we were great users of Skype. Right. So literally for best part of three years, every Thursday, every Thursday uh, at 11 o'clock his time, because he's in, in the States, four o'clock my time, we would have a one or two hour conversation where we would talk about what we've written, researched, what we're thinking about, that sort of thing. So in a sense, we started thinking in an aligned way. Uh, but it was also important, you know, this book would have been different if only I had written it. It would have been different if only John had written it. In other words, we wanted to get a genuinely Anglo-American approach to the story, which is so often told either by one side of the Atlantic or the other side. Yes. Uh, and so a lot of the thought that went into it that came through those Skype conversations, we acknowledged Skype in the yes, acknowledgements, so, yeah. came through that just constant conversation. And I'm guessing uh, software like Google Drive or something where you can share a document and yes, con- we constantly used, edit each other's We did. We, we, um, we used Evernote, in oh, fact. Very good, um, yeah. And uh, again, we, we created a whole, um, you know, that was where you could put images, documents that you that didn't that weren't yeah. you know um, uh, copyrighted that kind yeah, of thing, yeah. uh, where you could share and read and, and so you on. Drop so everything in there, can't you, yes, you? images, video, absolutely, voice recording, yes. So text. so it was it was you know, and that was one of the fun things. You know, we were kind of making it up at that bit as mm. we went along, mm. but because we've both been writers and editors, that I think that really helped. Fascinating. So, as I said, Mayflower. 400 but mm. there's a whole story 50 70 years prior to that and your book starts in the 1550s yes so just as i said there's so many s- stories within the story and just take us through the process of the, the story from the 1550s to how london and england exploded and d- discovered America, and w- actually, they weren't looking for America initially, were they? No, I mean, they, were looking, they were looking beyond America to, to other places. China, no less, I believe. Which that's is, great. Which uh, is a contemporary story even today. Oh yes, yeah, so there's yeah. a lot of contemporary resonances, and in fact, one of the things we were mulling beforehand was how much of now today should we put in the book. 
you know, you could have, we could have written it with a forward and, and so on and so forth. We decided not to because we thought that might age it. We thought people could make their own conclude, take their own conclusions. I think that's the best way, and, and yeah. So on, but but you know, some. So yeah, we did debate that, but we decided to just make it focused on this era and let people, you know, make up their own minds. Um, so as I said. You know, when we were looking at the Pilgrim story, we started investigating uh, archives. We um, and then we came across these uh, English merchants, mainly London merchants, uh, and we followed them back. And many of them were sort of related to each other through marriage or or uh, you know children of fathers and sons and, and so on and so forth. And we came to this period around the 1550s. Now, until that point, of course, you know, we all know that uh, Colum Christopher Columbus got to. Uh, to the Americas in, in 1492. We know that John Cabot, who was a, um, uh, an Italian who sailed under the, the flag of Henry VII, got to uh, supposedly Newfoundland in the late 1490s. Um, so the question is, why do we then start the story in, in the 1550s? Indeed, yeah. Well, uh, for that period between the 1490s and John Cabot and the 1550s, there were, there was not much, there were not many, um, efforts to get to America. Um, and uh, this is where London comes in because most of the focus had been by, or most of the uh, activity had been led by Bristol merchants, merchants from the, from the West Country. Um, and they were not as moneyed as, and as the, uh, as the London merchants. There were some attempts to get the London merchants involved, but they were making a pretty good living from the sale of woolen cloth to, uh, to Northern Europe, uh, to, um, uh, places like, in particular, Antwerp and wool through Calais. And so they had no reason to look beyond Europe. But then in the 1550s, there was um, an economic crisis. And again, this speaks to this whole idea that America was forged in this white heat of an economic crisis of the 1550s. Um, and in 1551, um, the, the market fell out of the, the bottom of the woolen cloth market. And, and why woolen cloth? Well, woolen cloth was the pr primary um, export of England, England's primary export. Because there were more sheep in the country. Than there were something like 11 million souls, <laughs> 4 million people, so yeah. outnumbering you know, roughly 4 to 1. And it's estimated that 9 out of 10 people made their livelihoods from sheep in some shape or form. Uh, and so it was in imperative that you know that that uh, lifeline of, of uh, exports continued but in 1551 there was a slump Europeans you know, on mainland Europe stopped, stopped buying it partly there was an exchange rate issue um, there was also an oversupply issue uh, and so there was a stalling of the, the sales and they fell quite quite dramatically and it forced the English merchants of course um, London merchants who had been quite happy into that, that moment what are we going to do? Um, and these are people like um, Thomas Gresham, who's you know, well known as the founder of the Royal Exchange and the Gresham uh, Gresham uh, College, and, um, and 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 various others. Um, Andrew Judd, um, who's um, founder of uh, Tunbridge School, which is just on the outskirts of of, uh, of London. Um, they they came together and said, "What are we going to do?" And they resolved that they had to find new markets beyond Europe. So then the question is. Where do we go? So already there's a whisper there from the past to today. 
just Brexit. Very much. Just I mean, you know, the economic you, you, market. And yes. Moving out and looking for new pastures and trying to strike deals with America. Yes. So I where, mean, have we seen that before? Absolutely. <laughs> very much, you know, this is kind of pre-imperial Britain. Um, this is very much the beginnings of what you might call global Britain. So now today we have talk of global Britain. Um, uh, of course, we're now living in a post-imperial uh, world, but this was pre-imperial. Mm. Uh, but already they were looking uh, far afield. Um, and so where did they decide to, to look? They wanted ultimately to get to China, as you, you were saying, Steve. And why did they, did they want to get to, to China? Well, when they sold uh, cloth to the Northern Europeans, they weren't simply selling it and getting gold and silver and coinage. They were, they were getting it in exchange for something. They were getting it in exchange for luxuries like silks, like spices, like wines, like currants and so on. And Antwerp was the northern entrepot where the Venetians came, the Germans came, the Portuguese came, the Spanish came. And so it was a great melting pot where you could do exchanges. And this is how uh, the English uh, got you know, the luxuries that they, they wanted. And so designed. those other countries you just mentioned, or the Venetians, and yeah. were bringing in their goods that they had acquired from. Correct. From yeah, so travels. Venice, for instance, which was a major uh, city-state, but it lay at the end of the 5,000-mile silk route uh, all the way to China. You know, so they were the great uh, importers and, and diffusers of some of the luxuries through Europe. But the English... The merchants decided, well, you know, we need to go directly to those markets. Cut out the middlemen. Cut out the middlemen <laughs> because, the, you know, what we had to offer the middlemen no longer is, is, is something they want. Has no value anymore. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so, and why did they go to China? China was believed to be the place in the East where these silks and, and spices came from. Uh, it was also, and this has another resonance with today, it was the largest economy in the world. You know, uh, economists have analysed this, and they've calculated that at roughly this time, uh, China accounted for about thirty percent of global GDP. India, for about twenty-five percent of global GDP. Venice, which was a huge European market, about four percent, and England uh, and the British Isles, a tiny one percent. And so there was every reason to try and get to to the biggest markets in in, in the sure. world. So. Wanting to get there is one thing. How on earth do you get there? Yeah. So this is when the, the merchants brought in, you know, top scientists and thinkers, people like John Dee, uh, who lived in Mortlake and, uh, top navigators and, and brave, uh, sailors. Uh, a man called Richard Chancellor was, was one. And they had to work out by sea which way were, they were going to go. Now they couldn't go around the bottom of South America because that was dominated by the, the Spanish, that had been, uh, the route there had been discovered by Magellan, who oddly enough was a Portuguese uh, aristocrat, but anyway, he was flying under the flag of the Spanish. They couldn't go the Cape of Good Hope route because that was dominated by the Portuguese. So it left them only with the uh, unattractive northern routes uh, through the icy Arctic waters. Um, they plumped to go the northeast route over the top of the Eurasian landmass, they believed that you could actually get there and get to China that way over, you know, the northern Norwegian coast and, and so on. And that's what they launched uh, an ex expedition in 1553. Um, and they set up a company uh, to, to help them do that. And that was what they famously called, was that the Northwest Passage they were looking for? This was the Northeast Passage. Northeast Passage, yes. I beg your pardon. Yeah. Come to the Northwest yeah, Passage. Yeah, sorry, we're doing China, yeah, yeah. So this is the Northeast Passage. Let's take a very quick break just to remind you, if you love the show and would like to get involved, 
grab some cool stuff, get shout-outs on the show, have us create your very own London Legacy show, or even meet up with us in London for a coffee or something stronger, just head over to www.patreon.com forward slash your London Legacy. Okay, let's carry on with the show. So they had many trials and tribulations trying to get there. If you want to just outline some of the... the the yes. uh, voyages that were done to try and get there, and I think ended up in Moscow of all places. That's right. So this northeast uh, route, uh, they didn't get uh, that far, but they got to uh, uh, Moscow, and the man called Richard Chancellor made his way from the um, you know the north coast down to Moscow, uh, which was then the Duchy of Muscovy, and it was then ruled by a czar that we now all know as Ivan the Terrible. He wasn't terrible at that point, apparently. Uh, but anyway, and, and that was the first trade relationship that was struck in 1553 and 1554 uh, between England and Russia for about 500 years, since the days of King Harold, the man who lost an eye and mm. his life in the Battle of Hastings. So 500 years. And, if, and that really kept the English going, the London merchants. They were happy with that. Yes, they hadn't got to, to China, but actually Russia and the, the hinterland was a source of furs and timber, which they needed for house building and, and boat building and so on. Uh, they, were, they built quite a, a good business out of it. And, and that company that oversaw that was a company called Muscov- the Muscovy Company. Um, and that's important because that was really probably the first um, company that has any link with our modern day corporations. It was a kind of joint stock company. Um, and why it was important was that it, al- it allowed both the merchants and other wealthy people to come together in the same um, kind of commercial vehicle and co-invest. And that really hadn't happened before. There had been um, people would either do it as individual ventures or they would, uh, you know, two or three of them would club together, uh, but not a big group coming together. And the word company is important here because it comes from two words, con meaning and uh, um, or with and panis meaning bread. And it signifies the idea of people breaking bread together. In other words, people that could trust each other to put their money in a, in a co-event. So co-venture. sharing in the, the ups and the downs, the profits Which, and the losses. Yes, and it, in particular, it, uh, it allowed the merchants to, to ally with very wealthy aristocrats who were landed, who had money to spare, particularly in the, in the light, in the wake of the, um, the monasteries, which were pulled down uh, out of those, uh, wealthy aristocrats got a lot of cash. And they invested in projects like this, but they didn't want to be involved in the sort of mundane business of running a business, but they would very happily uh, take the proceeds of a a speculative venture. And that's what they were investing in here. And so that kept them going for about five or six years. And then there was a second blow. So if you think of these two crises, the crisis in 1551, and then the second crisis in 1558 as being a kind of Tudor Brexit, as as you were (laughs) alluding to. And in 1558, the French uh, reclaimed what, which was no doubt in their, uh, they were entitled to do, reclaimed Calais, Calais yeah. which until then had been as the, the toehold uh, of the English for about 250 years. 
on the northern coast of, of France. Uh, and it'd been the main place uh, where the English had um, taken their wool products. And when uh, we say reclaim, sorry to interrupt, these are bloody battles. These aren't just like uh, discussions. No, no, yes. They, uh, yes they, 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 but, these are forces being sent over. They were to forces defend. being sent over and it was weakly defended. Uh, it was a crumbling fortress. Um, but yes, it was, a, it was a proper, you know, um, it wasn't just an individual city. It had land yeah. around it and so on. But it was taken by the French who were using Italian and Swiss mercenaries and it was taken, you know, um, in 1558, right at the beginning of January. Uh, it was taken within, you know, a few days. Mm. It was a hugely morale-defeating sense that, that went through, through England. Uh, the person who was reigning at that point was Queen Mary, sometimes better known as Bloody Mary. Mm. And her, she descended into illness and so on, and by, by November uh, was dead and replaced by Elizabeth, who did everything she could to, to try and get Calais back. Uh, but again, it forced the merchants to think, okay, we got to Russia, uh, but actually, you know, we need, you know, that's, that's not, that's not going to be sustaining. We need to get further. We need to re re review and renew our attempts to get to China. And so instead of going through the, the North East Passage, they decided to go which had failed, they went through the, what was then regarded as the Northwest Passage through what is now the Canadian Arctic. Now, we know that historically there is a route there. Uh, it was finally navigated by Roald Amundsen, who everyone will remember as the, the great uh, the person that beat Captain Scott to uh, the South Pole in, in, um, in 1912. But uh, so actually they were correct in knowing that there might be a route through the, the Arctic waters. Uh, but they didn't succeed. They had a number of attempts. Uh, a man called Martin Frobisher, who was a great hero in the Armada. He was one of the early explorers. But once they got there, they started to realize that there were other opportunities uh, on the east coast of America. And that's really where the, the story of America starts to, you know, the direct story of America starts to so begin. So was that more luck than judgment that they came across the uh, east coast of America? We, yes, I mean, yes, well, the realization north of that, and, and changing yeah. of priorities, uh, I think, as, as well. And, um, you know, they so why did so it was in 1585 that uh, Sir Walter Riley finally um, set up the first uh, um, colony called Roanoke, which is now North Carolina, in uh, 1585, and that was the first proper English colony, though it didn't survive. They had earlier uh, started um, settling Newfoundland. Um, a man uh, called Humphrey Gilbert had overseen that in few, a couple of years later. He was the half-brother of Raleigh. So they were rather keeping it in the family, this whole colony business. And so then the question might be, why did they go to why did they decide to not carry on trying to get to China? Why did they stop it Indeed. in America? And there were kind of th probably three reasons. One reason was that if you look at where Roanoke lies, it's pretty much on the same latitude as the Mediterranean. Yeah. And so I should say, folks, if you buy the book, which we're going to encourage you to do, of course, there's a lovely map um, showing the, the the trade routes, I suppose, and all the, the voyages that yes. were done uh, from the 1550s to 1621. And you can you can follow this story quite nicely by referring to this map. So, sorry, sorry to interrupt. That's you. right. No, yeah. so if you look at Roanoke, it's pretty much on the latitude of the Mediterranean. And so they believed uh, that uh, they could start growing the kinds of produce that they got from the Mediterranean. Uh, 
And why would they bother doing that? Why couldn't they just carry on going to the Mediterranean? Well, of course, in order to get to the Mediterranean, you had to go through the what are now the Straits of Gibraltar, and that was dominated by the Spanish in the north and by the uh, North Africans uh, in the south. Uh, who were the uh, Barbary, the peoples known as the Barbary peoples, and they were often known uh, as Barbary pirates. And that prevented them from getting into the Mediterranean and into the far extent of the Mediterranean uh, and the, the, the terminus of the Silk Route to, chi mm. to China. So they decided to go there. That, that was one reason. A second reason was, if you again look at the map and you see where Roanoke is, it's on uh, just north of Florida. And they hoped that that would be a kind of secret, almost piratical lair from which they could launch missions to uh, capture uh, silver from the great silver fleets that the Spanish sent from uh, South America across to, to Spain. And um, those began in, in the Caribbean. Uh, and you would have thought, well, can't they just go straight across? They don't need to go anywhere near uh, Roanoke, which is several hundred miles north of that. Well, the reason why they had to do uh, a, a, a kind of diversion and go north was because they followed two things. They followed the trade winds and they followed the currents. And that often took these huge uh, lumbering trade, uh, silver fleets up the coast of Florida. Um, and so they potentially could launch an attack on those in, in a very uh, strategic way. And the, and the third reason was they never lost hope of trying to get to China. Um, this continued to be something that they wanted to do through the, the, the following century, uh, the 1600s, and um, they believed that perhaps there was a, a land route or a, a land route through to, to China. Um, and you can kind of see the logic because if you go down to the uh, Panamanian isthmus, it comes into it becomes quite narrow. Yes. So there's no reason why the, why that might not have continued in some way. Uh, so there was a logic to to this, and uh, so that's really why they started focusing on on uh, on Roanoke. So just talk us through some of the the early settlers uh, attempts at settlement before the mayflower and yes. some of the most successful because there was one or two successful ones or partially successful ones yes. or ones that they thought were successful and so disappeared off the face of the earth yes be found again so which is a fascinating story in itself yes yeah, so the, the there's i mean the, the the main one is is roanoke and raleigh wasn't allowed to go. Elizabeth regarded him as, you know, his uh, as as her great sort of favourite. But, but he'd been once or twice prior to this initial voyage. No, but no, no, he'd not actually been. He'd never not, been at all. No, he did eventually go to uh, Guyana, um, but at this point he um, had not not been. wasn't allowed. Right. He should, you know, he was known by Elizabeth by his pet name Water, uh, uh, W A T E R Water. Uh, as a, a sort of friendly pet name that she gave him and wouldn't let him out of her sight. You know, he was a dashing a young 30 uh, something. She was in her, you know, fifties by this stage, but she still believed that maybe she could be attractive. And he, you know, he knew how to, uh, to flatter her. Uh, and he did very well from, from that monetarily. Anyway, he, he sent an expedition to Roanoke and for the, for a, a, a year, they um, uh, they survived and did very well, and they befriended the local peoples, the local North American Native Americans uh, from the Algonquin tribes, and there were two people, in fact, who who created some 
a publication, a man called Thomas Harriet, who I mentioned right at the beginning of our conversation, and a man called John White. Uh, he was a fantastic watercolorist whose paintings you can actually continue to see in the British Library uh, today. And you've got some color plates here. And we've got some color well, plates, which are lovely. Quite, yeah. quite beautiful. Yeah. And these were the first real views of uh, local peoples that the English had seen when they were sent back. When so it's like taking a photographer or a videographer and, and bringing it back to, to England to say, look how wonderful this place is and doing some marketing. Absolutely. You know, so when you, when you, you know, think of the, the, the Captain Cook exp, you know, expeditions to Australia a couple of hundred years later, this was happening 200 years earlier. Now, John White comes back into the story because after a year, all, pretty much all the people came back and a second expedition was sent out in, in 1587. And it was led by John White, the watercolorist, who really wasn't a leader of men, uh, a leader of people. He wasn't a, you know, he's a, he's a painter, yeah. uh, albeit a gentleman. But, uh, you know, he took with him a group of Londoners uh, who were from, you know, families really, who who sold up and believed that they could find a new life in in the new world. It went okay to start off with, but then he was sent back to get more supplies uh, because they the the people believed that John White would have the you know the charisma and the and the status to be able to get the supplies that were needed. But unfortunately, by the time he got back, the Armada had begun. So the attempted invasion of England by the Spanish in 1588. So John White had come back to get supplies, wasn't allowed back to America. So he wasn't able to get back to see his uh, the, the, the community, wasn't able to get back to see his, um, his daughter and son-in-law, wasn't able to get back to see the very first person, who, English person who was born in, uh, in America, a girl called Virginia Dare, who was John White's granddaughter. However, eventually, as the conflict subsided, England, you know, repulsed the Spanish. He eventually got back in 1590. Couldn't see any evidence of the colony. Where were they? So how uh, many people ostensibly had he left behind as the first? Uh, in the order of maybe um, 60 to 100. And there was just no sign of them at no all? No trace of them at all. No trace of the settlement? No trace of the people? Or just there, was there, was, there was evidence of the settlement, uh, but it looked as though they had abandoned it in a hurry. Right. So had they been attacked uh, and so on. So it was not known. They'd left some suggestion that they'd gone to a neighboring island called Croatan. He, he pursued that, but... but when he couldn't find them at all, he admitted defeat and returned, was forced really to return to England using the, the sailors who were getting frustrated and, and, and impatient uh, with his, you know, focus on looking for the uh, colonists. Of course, they then enter American legend as the lost colonists. And even today, there's speculation that they did in fact hold on. They were perhaps taken in or some of them were taken in by local peoples and there's some suggestion that they survived right up until uh, 1606 or 1607, just before uh, the first permanent English colony was founded in Jamestown by, um, by the Virginia Company. So that was the end of Roanoke. Uh, but the first proper colony, the one that we date as the first English permanent English colony is Jamestown, that people will, have, will know about. It was named after King James, who succeeded Elizabeth I in 1603. And the Virginia Company uh, was, of course, Virginia was named by Walter Raleigh after Elizabeth, the Virgin Queen. And, and the Virginia Company was led by an outstanding English merchant called Sir Thomas Smythe, Thomas Smith, who is a member of the Skinners here, worshipful company of Skinners, worshipful company of haberdashers. 
even today oh, you can go and visit old can... school haberdashers oh right yeah you can go and visit their um you can go and visit their uh halls here though they don't uh, none, none of the halls of the worshipful companies date back this far uh, because of things like the Fire of London and the Second World War. But he founded uh, the, the company in 1607. But he was also, at that point, governor of the uh, East India Company, which other people will, have, will know. And he was still involved in the Muscovy Company and a number of other companies. So he was the preeminent merchant of this era. And Raleigh was very much out of favour at this point when Raleigh James was, first came to the throne. Yes, Raleigh was very much out of favour. In fact, he was in the Tower of London where he stayed from 1604 uh, through till 1617 when he was briefly released in an ill-starred venture that ended up with his being uh, executed in 1618. Uh, but he was out of the picture and it meant that as a result of that, his claim to the territories of the East Coast of America uh, fell uh, fell vacant. Uh, and so the Virginia Company uh uh, you know, focused its uh, ter territorial um, expansion around Jamestown from 1607, but they really struggled. So the idea that you could just send a few people over there and they could busily ca carry on where they'd left, left off in London, no, they had to be cons constantly supplied. Uh, and the man that was responsible for doing, overseeing that was Thomas Smith, Thomas Smythe. Um, because the logistics of doing this cross-Atlantic voyage yes. on these ships yes. with... I don't know, hundreds of people yes. from different walks of life. You've got, I don't know, nobility and you've got carpenters and you've yes. got, you know, some children, you've yes. got, you know, trying to make, you know, families out there as well. And they've got to have farmers and all sorts of people. Yes. And you've got to cross the Atlantic in storms. So they lost many ships over the, these 40, 50 years, didn't they? Hundreds yes. of people's lives were lost. Yes. And then they just left them there. There's no means of communication back again. You then got to go back restock replenish go back again and, yes and it's just important and so this is so thomas smith i'll i'll use the word i'll say smith because it, it, although he preferred the spelling with a s-m-y-t-h-e smythe it, um, he also uh you know it was spelt smith as well um so maybe we'll just say sir thomas smith for yeah. the purposes of the, of the conversation but he had been involved with roanoke and raleigh right at the end and had realized that one of the problems why that failed was the lack of constant supply so he sought to address that with jamestown uh and and of course it, it survived uh, with many trials and tribulations in fact there's the the, the story of the flagship of, uh, of uh, an expedition that was sent out in 1609. Uh, this was a, a fleet of about nine ships. One leaked pretty early on and came back. Seven made it to Jamestown. One didn't. It was the leader of it was a man called Sir George Summers, S-O-M-E-E-R-S, -E -E whose statue you can now go and see in Lyme Regis, which is where he was MP of. And he, uh, he was mastermind of this particular, uh, uh, admiral of this particular ship and that was shipwrecked in Bermuda which at that point was uninhabited and it was known as the Isle of Devils because it was famous for, for shipwrecks anyway remarkably the ship uh, that was shipwrecked was completely destroyed but all 150 passengers survived and lived uh, on Bermuda uh, for about nine months. Eventually, they got, they carried on and went to Jamestown. But that was just a classic story of how, uh, you know, it was a real struggle to get to Jamestown. And uh, so George Summers eventually went back to Bermuda because it was, it was, it was full of 
pigs because uh, sailors had left uh, one or two pigs there, you know, in the hope, in the expectation that, you know, their successors might struggle and so people would have at least some food to, to survive on but of course over many years many decades it became a you know um, a, a wonderful um, kitchen really for, yeah. for sailors and so the Jamestown settlers realized that they could you know, use Bermuda as a, as a place for um, for getting food and that's what they did it eventually but Sir George Summers eventually died there they were also colloquially known as the Summers Islands partly because of him and partly because they were so beautiful as in summer the the, the, uh, the season uh, a kind of play on words anyway back to Jamestown 1607 founded they sorry 1614 they started to um, cultivate tobacco and that was the real breakthrough a man called John Rolfe uh, was the man who uh, really started cultivating it effectively, sent a small crop back to, some, to Sir, Sir Thomas Smith in London. And then they started uh, creating, of course, you know, Virginia. Virginia is still famous for, for its tobacco. Mm. Um, another person that comes into the story here is Pocahontas. The legendary Pocahontas. Uh, the legendary Pocahontas, who was a convert, became a convert, probably a forced convert, married John Rolfe, the tobacco man, and came almost in, on a marketing mission in 1616 to London, stayed for a time near Sion House, which we mentioned earlier, and was a, was, was a um, star, uh, and encouraged, as a result, a lot of people to invest in Virginia, uh, in the Virginia Company and the Virginia American Project. And uh, unfortunately, she died uh, on, on the way back, well, pretty much soon after uh, getting on board and is uh, good later rest in Gravesend at the end of the, Tem uh, the Thames, and you can go and see a statue of her there. Uh, John Rolfe returned, uh, was killed in a subsequent battle with the uh, Native American. That doesn't last too long, yes. has to be so. But the son, <laughs> Thomas, did, and his forebears still uh, survive. So there are people out there who are, you know, claim direct descendancy to uh, uh, Pocahontas. Wow. Um, who, who I can see here actually changed their name to Rebecca. Well, it was changed, yeah, it was changed the, for her. Anglicised yes, for her. Anglicised, yes. Yeah. Uh, so, James, uh, so Jamestown thrives ultimately. It thrives. Yeah. And so, of course, when the pilgrims come along uh, and found New Plymouth, you know, Jamestown was a relatively thriving colony. And there was in, obviously interaction between the two. But they were very different in culture. They were very different. Of course, the pilgrims were uh, religiously oriented. A lot of the people in Jamestown were driven by profit and tobacco and some, perhaps the, some of the seedier side of things. And that's perhaps why they uh, were not remembered. Another reason why we think they weren't uh, remembered was, was a, as a result of the, uh, the American Civil War, which is in the, in the, uh, 1860s and in the 1860s of course this is a battle between the north and the south the P new plymouth is, is in the north jamestown just about is in the south and uh, of course we, as we know the north won that battle uh, with uh, abraham lincoln and, and and so on and the unionists versus the confederates but the pilgrim story had been pretty much forgotten up until that just point. recap on the pilgrim story for us yeah. because that was the the uh, protestants who went to uh, who felt they were being pushed out of the country or couldn't practice as they wanted to in in, in england yes and moved over to holland into a place called leiden that's I correct believe. yes and so they so they they um so the story why why did the pilgrims want to go to uh, america well as you say they they left to go to uh, the netherlands uh, um and to leiden 
partly because they could practice their religion. They were Protestants, uh, extreme Protestants. They wanted to, they were separatists. So they, were, they, weren't, uh, they weren't just Puritan. They actually wanted to separate from the church. But after a while, it, this is 1618, 1619, they were uh, realizing that they weren't faring that well. So they were able to, um, it's often thought that the reason why they went to America was to pursue religious freedom, but that actually isn't the case. The reason, uh, because in, in so the another, Netherlands, another myth, another myth destroyed. Another myth, <laughs> the, 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 because they were, you know, they were able to practice their religion quite freely in, in, in the Netherlands, but they were struggling to survive as a community. They were English, of course, and they were worried about their children growing up in, not in an English culture. Um, so they wanted to, um, you know, encourage their kids to grow up as English people. They were financially struggling because they had to work as cloth workers. But when they were in England, most of them were not cloth workers. And then there was the fear of war. So 1618 was the start of something called the Thirty Years' War, a great religious conflagration between the Catholics and the Protestants. So they were quite keen to get away from that, 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 that uh, those dangers. And so they eventually sailed to what they named New Plymouth. They were in fact intending to get to Jamestown because there was no New Plymouth at that point mm. and they were supported by uh, a, a group of small time relatively small time merchants a person called Thomas Watson who was, not, uh, was part of the worshipful company of ironmongers which was a major company but he was not a, a major uh, force akin to Sir Thomas Smith anyway they, they got to uh, to New Plymouth and built their community and and they were able as a result of that to build a um you know a, a modest income on the back of fur trade and, and and so on and so forth but afterwards uh you know this was 17 sorry this was 1620 1621 in 1630 there was a big wave of puritans that came now they were not ex as extreme as the uh the uh the pilgrims, uh, and they founded uh, what was then Boston and so on, and became much more successful. And the pilgrims rather uh, became a rather diminished and forgotten group, relatively. Um, so by the time you get to the 1860s, they are not, people weren't really talking about the pilgrims uh, in the same way that we might think they were. But what they were also famous for was uh, a, a, a an event that took place in 1621, where they celebrated their survival through the tough, uh, the tough winter, uh, called Thanksgiving, and the manuscript of the of the uh, the founder uh, or the lead Pilgrim Father was a man called William Bradford, and during his his tenure as as the um, sort of go the governor, um, um, he wrote a diary and a and a, um, a kind of travelogue and a sort of calendar of all his thoughts, uh, which became a famous document called On Plymouth Plantation. It was handwritten on vellum, on goatskin. But, it, but after the American War of Independence in the 1770s, 1780s, it, it was lost. But it funnily enough emerged and was found in 18, the 1850s, of all places in uh, Fulham Palace <laughs> Library. And why on earth would it be found in Fulham Pal Palace Library in London, uh, this document which had been written in New Plymouth, you know, 150 years earlier. Uh, and that's because Fulham Palace was, until fairly recently, the home of the, the official home of the Bishops of London. 
And the bishops of London, for various reasons, uh, were responsible for the, the, the American colonies fell within the diocese of the, of the bishops of London. And so all the documents that were collected by the bishops up until the American War of Independence were then taken back to, to, to of course, the library of the bishops of London in, in, in England. But it was lost, rediscovered in the 1850s. And that, of course, re-excited uh, uh, the, 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 uh, the country, America, that was struggling to, to pull people together. And uh, it was a, actually a woman called Sarah Josepha uh, Hale, who's best known as, a, as the, the writer of Mary Has a Little Lamb, but she was also a, a, a formidable editor. And she wrote to Abraham Lincoln at the height of the Civil War saying, you know, shouldn't there be a moment when the people of North and South come together in a, on a day, official day of Thanksgiving, uh, you know, she, and she was drawing inspiration from Bradford, who wrote about the very first Thanksgiving meeting between the, the Native Americans and 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 the uh, the community of pilgrims to celebrate their um, survival. He thought it was a fantastic idea, wrote it, uh, wrote a proclamation, and it's pretty much ever since then. The last Thursday, the last Thursday, I think, of, of, um, of November when Thanksgiving is remembered and celebrated. And that goes right back till then. Yeah. And indeed, we said before, I did a, a, an interview on Thanksgiving, specifically on Thanksgiving when two American, uh, executive chefs came over and toured, toured the UK and ran about Thanksgiving time. And we had the opportunity of talking to them and interviewing them at the, the Mayflower pub. Which yes. Was, which was, a, which was a wonderful experience. Yes. Yeah. Because as I understand it, with the Mayflower, first got to America, they lost, because of the, the, the weather conditions, they lost, I don't know, a third of their, their, their people just died from cold and disease. Yes, I mean, it was, hunger. you know, it, it was, uh, you know, the colonists used to talk about seasoning. In other words, you would, t t you know, there would be a time when you, you know, if you survived that uh, early, early period, you would endure. Mm. But many people didn't survive the tough conditions, both in, um, both in Jamestown and, and the, and the New Plymouth. Another point here is it, it, it was an exceptionally challenging time uh, at any time, but this was known. This period was known as the Little Ice Age, a period when, for various reasons, scientists wonder whether it's a sort of uh, a changing of the of the Earth's on it on its axis. But from about 1350 to 1850, the world went through a, a, a much colder period known as the Little Ice Age. And uh, of course, Dickens writing in the, in, in the mid 1800s often wrote of, in his memory of sort of icy conditions, things like frost fairs, the Thames was, was completely, you, know, you yeah. can't imagine doing that now where you could literally walk across the, the Thames. And uh, so of course it was cold here, but it was even colder there. And so they had to endure very, very tough winters. Uh, never mind, you know, in Jamestown, they were struggling in the summer with sort of malarial conditions. Yeah, as we've well. got another throwback, haven't we, to climate change? <laughs> very much with climate change. Um, in fact, there is a link to climate change here um, more broadly, which is the reason why, of course, they eventually stumbled on America was because they couldn't get through the icy Arctic <laughs> of waters of the north uh, uh, to, to China. But of course, now it is possible at certain times of the year for, and you know, the, the Chinese have done it, the Russians have done it, the Canadians have done it, to actually pass through the Northwest Passage 
shortening the time and they anticipate at some point that that will become a regular thing so no longer will boats have ships have to go through the Suez Canal they'll be able to go both over the, the Northwest Passage and the Northeast Passage. So you kind of ask the question, well, if that happened today, would America have ever been discovered or would it Absolutely. be the place it is today? Yeah, yeah or today. I mean, looking at the news today, looking at the, uh, the way the ice caps are melting and the, the, what is this, this particular ice part of, is it the North the, the Arctic? Yes, which the size they, of Great Britain. The size of Great Britain, which they concerned is melting faster than they originally thought. Yes. And if it does, then a lot of major cities are going to be underwater in a few years anyway. So yeah. there won't be any problem navigating the seas because there'll be more water than land. But very frightening. That's right, <laughs> yes. <laughs> so just bring us up to date then, bang up to date. I think that pretty much does actually because what is this telling us? Is this telling us that whilst we believe that the Mayflower, the story, the Americans tell themselves, yes. and we follow in their lead in many, many respects, that Thanksgiving, the Pilgrim Fathers were the, were the first proper settlers who formed the colony there, then went on to have the, the X million descendants and were formed America, modern America as we know it today. That's not the true accurate picture because it was all, it wasn't done for religious reasons specifically, it was done for through mercantile organizations and city of London corporations and yes. all the rest of it, which went at least 50 to 70 years prior to that. Yes, I, th I think, it, you know, I mean, it has a number of, you know, resonances. You've got China, of course, coming back in into uh, the, the story uh, now. Um, you've got our changing, you know, special relationship that's evolving and so on, you know, uh, but it's again built around trade. That's the, the, a lot of the discussions is happening. Uh, as you say, the, the, the story of America is is tied much more to entrepreneurship to uh sort of co commerce and uh to start starting afresh i mean one of the things we say about these people uh particularly in jamestown where they were the first people to really live the american dream the idea that you can start with nothing but through hard work and diligence um earn the fruits of your labor and 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 absolutely these were so again there's a real mixing of of, of classes here as you alluded to earlier steve that about the you know the aristocrats and the uh, and the you know unland those without land they they were they were living alongside each other in the way that they certainly weren't in in in, in england uh, so you, you get this real melting pot of peoples, of classes, of accents, of voices, of regions, you know, because again, in England, you know, if you lived in Yorkshire, you pretty much stayed in Yorkshire. If you lived in the, the, uh, the, the, uh, the West Country, you pretty much stayed there. There wasn't much integration. But here you had all sorts of people integrating with, with each other in, in a small, small area. And so that creates, creates a great sense of, of starting again of innovation and, and so on, which really goes right back to this, this period. Another point I think we would make is, is about this sense of coming back from failure. So these people really went to the, 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 as far as you could possibly go in terms of extremes. Some of them didn't survive. Some of them did. And those that did were able to come through it and, and get stronger. Um, and, you know, of course, we know in 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 uh, Britain, if you're if you become bankrupt, that seems a bad thing. In America, that's just step one in the journey of becoming a, a true entrepreneur. In other words, they they understand that you just pick yourself up, start all over again. And so these ideas uh, were forged before the Pilgrims at this much earlier period. Um, and I just think that's that's interesting because again, as we now in, in the UK, in the UK are trying to sort of forge our own next phase. Um, you know, there are sort of lessons here that could be perhaps applied. I think it's utterly fascinating. And now sitting here, 
in modern contemporary Britain looking back on what went before to think they could navigate these oceans at this period in time I know it'd been done earlier um, but to think they could do that there was no means of communication back they couldn't do a whatsapp or a message or a skype call as you did to write the book yes so when they went back to get provisions or to report back on how the settlements were going or how what they'd found you know whether it was iron or, or you know livestock or whatever yeah oftentimes someone had died they never made it or the monarchy had changed and it wasn't protestant it was catholic or whatever yes you know or they or they they come across the spanish Armada, whatever it was yes. and it's, it's just remarkable to think that this could ever happen it's yes i mean you in, in a way the the closest that we can get to imagine it is is really the kind of stuff that someone like elon musk is doing pioneering going to mars and you know you you know that there are certain um scientists who are living in kind of lockdown almost as if they're on Mars in these these sort of scientific laboratories somewhere in preparation for going going I, there. I, I didn't, and, know, didn't and, know that. And, it, and, it, and it's kind of, you know, and the, the, the dangers that they're going to face and all of that are very similar uh, to, to the kind of experience of, of similar, going there. But even then today, we know a certain amount about, you know, yes. Mars and I think it's more dangerous then. Yeah. Yes, it was more dangerous then. <sighs> but then some of the people, what do they have to lose? You know, they lived, some of them had, utter, they were living in utter poverty. And, you know, the stories, for instance, just uh, in Jamestown, you know, that first uh, first uh, voyage, there were some people that went and they were they were called indentured servants. So there were uh, people without land, and without title. Uh, they went and they were, they promised to serve for about seven years. Many of them died, but those that survived in, in um, 1614 had the option to go home, many, some of them did, and to stay. If they stayed, they would be given a plot of land that they would be able to work as their own uh, and derive 11 months of, derive an income from it and a, a livelihood and retain 11 months of their uh, efforts and give one month of, of um, produce to the, to the company, to the Virginia company. And so for the first time, that really set up the idea of both private property, the idea that you, uh, you earned the, you, you were able to keep the fruits of your labor all of these kind of ideas, which were not particularly established in England, but became established uh, in America at a very early stage. So, you know, the belief that you could start with nothing and become something absolutely found, is founded by English people in a new world. I, I think it's a, it's a remarkable book. I think the amount of work and, and effort and detail that is in here is just, is just staggering. Thank and so, it, no, it's, it's really nicely written, beautifully written, because it's, it's an easy read from a historical perspective i mean silly question did you enjoy it are you happy with the outcome yeah i mean you always <laughs> you all you know you think what's next can you tell the next bit of the story um um because the mayflower story has been told the mayflower has been times, told yeah. a, a, a lot but it's you know it's recasting that story putting a different context to it you know i i learned a lot of course because a lot of the stuff i didn't know and it's uh, you know, it, it, I mean, it, it is enjoyable, particularly, you know, at the end, it's a bit, a bit like going for it. Now, I enjoyed it during it, but it's also a bit like going for a, a long run. You know, you know, you're, it's doing you good <laughs> in that sense, you know, but you particularly enjoy it when you get to the other end and you can take your shoes yeah. off. And what was there more, more data, more um, literature out there than you suspected there would be in able to, to enable yes. you to write it? Yes. I mean, you know, there, there's huge, huge amounts. I mean, you, you could probably spend your life and uh, you know, studying this period, mm. uh, you know, we, we gave ourselves two or three years, uh, but of course, you know, you, you could get even deeper into it. And um, you know, so did you get to meet some interesting people along the way? 
or was this mostly sort of head in a dark room? <laughs> I, I think a lot of it was was in a dark room actually. But again, you know, you, you recover. There's so much to be discovered in these archives that are, that I think the, I, I I grew great respect for the people that digitise all the sources which are happening on a regular basis in universities and museums. So, uh, and we you know pay tribute to the to them in the acknowledgements that. That's an extraordinary, you know, thing to do. And, you know, there are many more things to be digitized, but that's really opening it up. It means that anybody can access these things. So, you know, a person who look, gets this book can follow the footnotes and go and pretty much follow the, uh, follow the sources and see where it takes yeah. them. Well, they might as well just read this. I mean, <laughs> yes. otherwise they'll be here for another 20 million years yes. to try to resource all that. When you've, you've done all the legwork. Well, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a brilliant book. It's called New World Inc., the story of the British Empire's most successful startup. I like that. That's a nice sort of um, subtitle by John Butman and Simon Target. Uh, financial Times. Well, you've got to have a uh, yes. You've got a, what's the testimony from the Financial Times? Deeply researched and well written. I would expect nothing, nothing less. But it, it's a fascinating book, and I recommend it to anyone who's interested in this period, who's interested in how England expanded or Britain expanded her her early empire into the new world, and how America became. The America it is today. There's so many touch points from today. I mean, even you think about Harry and Meghan today. Yes, you know, and you got poker hunters, and yes. uh, I'm not making that direct comparison. But <laughs> I don't know how much time we've got. But yeah. anyway, there was a, there, there was an earlier Prince Henry, uh, who was the eldest son of James the the first, who took great interest in Jamestown, and uh, he died as a young man, so didn't see see it but he was seen as the great sort of hope for the the the, the settlers and so on because he um was was more of a sponsor in a sense of the whole colonial and uh colonial and merchant mission than than his father uh, so yeah prince henry mm, fantastic so in wrapping up how can people find you get in touch with you find you on social media etc etc yes so i have um a, a, i have a website www.thinkingcapcommunications.com I'm on Twitter and we'd love to have more followers um, I'm on LinkedIn so those yeah those are my main places fantastic so people can buy your book through your website or as I did I believe well, Amazon go, yes Amazon go, straight, yes, straight, straight yes. through Amazon yes um, which is probably the easiest way and if you're on Prime you'll probably get it the next day as well but in addition to that I think we're going to well you tell me what we're we going to do you've got a copy of a book in front I of do, you I do yes I uh, would like to sign a copy and offer it to one of your uh, listeners. Fantastic. So what we'll do, we'll stick on the introduction to this episode, how you can go about claiming or winning, shall we say, your um, copy, signed copy of New World Inc. by Simon Target, which is, is a wonderful thing to have, even if you just flick through it from time to time and look at the wonderful color images and templates that are in there, all original stuff. It is really a book well worth having on your bookshelves. So, Simon... Thank you very much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. I've really enjoyed it. I hope you have too. Very much. Thanks for inviting me. It's no. a terrific thing you're doing, you know, uh, talking to people from across London and sort of discovering the stories of London. Yeah, it's the, it's the stories and the people and the passion and uh, everything that goes with it. Yeah. As you enjoy your research on the book, I enjoy my research on the, on yes. the individuals who I go, go and meet and then uh, follow up with their stories and the yeah. stories that they're following. So Indeed. It, it, it's all a treat and it's all catalogue. So it's really... A legacy we're now leaving for everybody else to follow when we're not around anymore, hopefully. <laughs> the digital archive will still be there. <laughs> well, as uh, regular listeners to the podcast will know, I always ask my wonderful guests to recommend or talk about very briefly a couple of places in London that are particularly personal uh, to them for whatever reason. 
It could be, uh, I would say, a pub, a museum, a walk, a restaurant, a building. It could be anything in particular. Um, so, Simon, your sort of love of London shines through this book. So what are a couple of places you could recommend or suggest to our listeners? So this, Steve, is really hard. It's a bit like being on you know, Desert Island Discs where you have to narrow your massive uh, you know, re- record it, it, collection. It, to- it, it is tough, but I, I said this, I think, before. We've had over 75, I think, guests so far on the show, and I think the overlap has only been one or two. So yes. the diversity of places you yes. can choose is is ongoing. So I know you did a big a podcast not so long ago on, on the monuments, and, yes. and definitely the monument is up there amongst my Brilliant. top two or three. But, uh, you know, other other uh, uh, other places um, I would identify, well, one is, the, is Richmond Park. So I live not far from Richmond uh, Park, and and you know it's, it's the place that if you look from a satellite, it's the big sort of black eye that uh, you know that it has literally no no light at all. Uh, but it, this is a, a kind of a wonderful place to to wander, to run, to explore. When you're in the middle of it and you look up, the only thing that perhaps indicates you're anywhere near London is the is the plane going mm. to, to Heathrow. But otherwise, it's just. Uh, it's a it's a it's a world away yet it's in the middle of you know one of the great uh, global cities in the world it is stunning i don't i haven't spent nearly enough time there yes there is some wonderful natural not wildlife there the the, the deer and so you've got stags. the deer uh the red deer uh, but you've got some ha- houses so there's history there the, the the there's the royal ballet school which was um which is a famous old white house which was used by robert walpole the, the man i i studied used by him when his son was the ranger of of, of richmond park uh, back in the 1700s um, there's a place called pembroke lodge which was p- the place where um bertrand russell lived a great philosopher for a while uh, so it's got touch points as well uh, like that so mm. i i definitely recommend richmond Excellent. park connected to that uh, again is is and when I first moved to to the, to the Richmond area, I remember being kind of overwhelmed by there's a plaque on a wall, uh, which says you know this is where you know, Elizabeth the first died in um, March 1603, and it's the outer wall of um, of what was once Richmond Palace. Oh, wow. uh, so and you can still see bits of Richmond Palace, you know the old red brick Tudor walls, the the wonderful gates to go into it, uh, which is now being used by you know other housing and and flats and, and and so on. But again, if you walk through the grounds of Richmond Park on the way to Richmond Green and just pause for a minute, you can really get a sense of the. Um, you know, this is where this is where Elizabeth heard about the Armada. You know, this is her great winter residence. So much happens, and if you pause for a minute and think about all those things that happened, you really get back in touch with history just by being close to those uh, Tudor red brick walls. So those are two places. Yeah, absolutely fantastic. Both individually brilliant, and both of them I don't think ever been mentioned before oh, as places. Apart from a previous guest who was um, uh, a triathlete uh, Olympian who was cycling through Richmond Park oh, yes. and he got thrown off his um, bike by he went headlong into a stag and shattered his uh, his pelvis I think it was broke oh his leg quite recently Stuart Hayes if you're listening <laughs> you, you know you know what I mean um, no two two excellent um, places so thank you very much once again it's been a pleasure having you on the podcast thanks very much Steve I absolutely love creating your London legacy for you and the feedback and testimonials are awesome. But as it grows, so it consumes more and more resources. 
So I've joined forces with Patreon, a really cool place where you can show your love and support from just as little as $2 a month as a silver Londoner, right up to $300 per month where you get the crown jewels. Each level of subscription opens up a host of exclusive extra goodies, events, bonus shows, and sponsorship opportunities only available via, via Patreon. I do hope you will continue to support what we're doing here. And I'm so grateful for whatever you feel able to give. So please head over to www.patreon.com forward slash your London legacy. That's www.patreon.com forward slash your London legacy.